Hello and welcome to Intrepid Times, your home for narrative travel writing with art. On the Intrepid Times podcast, we take you behind the scenes of some of our most popular storytelling, get you to meet travel writers, and discover how you can share your own travel stories with the world. and welcome back to the Intrepid Times podcast. I'm Jennifer Roberts, and today I'm here with Tim Hannigan, an award-winning author and travel journalist. He has a PhD from the University of Leicester for a critical creative investigation of ethical issues in contemporary travel literature and works on travel writing and contemporary nature writing as an academic. His most recent books are The Travel Writing Tribe and The Granite Kingdom, uh, both of which we'll be talking about quite a bit today. Um, It's not often we get to speak with a travel writing scholar and travel writer, Um, so I'm really excited about today's conversation. Uh, Thanks so much for making time for us today, Tim. Oh, thanks for having me. It's a it's a pleasure to be here. And, and like you say, yeah, travel travel writing scholars are a bit of a mysterious breed. And although I'm kind of a not quite a not quite a full blown one, I'm a bit of a in betweener. Um, I, I do like to I do like to speak on those topics outside of the kind of academic academic zone. Yeah, there's going to be a lot of crossover with that today. So yeah, I'm really looking forward to how all that plays. And just to make things clear for listeners, um, so today we're going to be talking mostly about your new book, uh, The Granite Kingdom, you know, which is a travel book slash cultural and historical inquiry into Cornwall, which is where you're from. Um, But I'll also be mentioning occasionally The Travel Writing Tribe, which came out in 2021. That's just a really fascinating exploration of, you know, kind of travel writing overall. (laughs) Um, I just want to make sure our listeners understand they'll be hearing references to two different titles, um, but we're going to try to keep everything clear. So let's get started. There's a lot, there's a lot to talk about here. You know, the Granite Kingdom, you're writing about home, uh, which isn't something that a lot of travel writers try to do. (laughs) Um, And I mean, you did it beautifully. The book is amazing. Um, also, kudos to whoever designed the cover. It's gorgeous. Yeah, that's that's a, uh, an illustrator called Matt Johnson, who is, uh, yeah, he's brilliant. Um, <laughs> I'm very happy for people to judge this book by its cover. He's, he's a great <laughs> illustrator. Yeah, no, it's beautiful. And so I want to get started with, you know, maybe a little bit of a tricky question. Um, but it's something I thought a lot about while I was reading, you know, both The Travel Writing Tribe and The Granite Kingdom. You know, because in The Travel Writing Tribe, you know, you talk a bit about how, you know, in a perfect world, a place's story would get told by the people who are from that place, you know, the people who know it best. Of course, that doesn't happen most of the time because, you know, people lack the skills or the resources to write or to get their writing published. And so, you know, you say when that isn't possible, the best thing a travel writer can do is to bring in the voices of the locals as much as possible. In the Granite Kingdom, you are the local voice. Um, and as I was reading, you know, I noticed you did bring in a lot of outside voices. You know, there's a really fun scene with a bus driver who's come in, you know, from outside Cornwall to help for the summer season. Um, you know, there's a lot of writers who have traveled into Cornwall from elsewhere that you quote. And so I guess my question here is, you know, does there have to be a contrast in order for travel writing to work? 
you know, do we have to have both the outside and the inside voices mm. you know, to make it all interesting? That's a that's a great question. In a way, it, it kind of gets to the to the nub of, of what is travel writing. Is it travel writing if you write only about your own place, you never leave your own place, you only talk to people from your own place, and you actually only then present the book to people from your own place? Is that travel writing? And I suppose there'd be an argument to say that's not because nobody has traveled. Um, I, I think if we if we were really trying to pin down travel writing, we'd say there'd have to be some kind of outside perspective in the equation somewhere, whether it's the writer, whether it's the voices they're talking about. Um, usually it's not, usually the writer is the outsider, but potentially the writer could be the insider, but maybe like me in the Granite Kingdom, the voices they're engaging with or the texts they're engaging with are from outside. And then you have to think about the reader as well. Um, who are the bulk of the people reading this? Are they people from the place or are they from people from outside the place? And do you have two completely different ways of receiving the thing? So I think so long as there is an element of outside perspective somewhere in the equation, then it counts as travel writing. But what I guess I'm trying to do here and an argument I was trying to make in the travel writing tribe is that it doesn't have to be the traditional um, the traditional structure, which is outside a travel writer going to foreign place, describing foreign place and presenting it to an audience who are mostly assumed to be not from that place. That's the very, very traditional set up for travel writing and I just like the idea that there are other ways for it to be structured and still be travel writing. Yeah you know there there's this moment you know very close to the beginning of the book you're really just getting your journey started um, you know because in the book you kind of walk from you know east to west across Cornwall and you know there's this moment where you kind of have to cross the I think it's the Tamar Tamar River? Tamar yeah. Tamar. Um, and you have to go into Devon and you have to kind of cross back into Cornwall. Um, and, you know, there was that moment of, you know, kind of an outsider, you know, air quotes, crossing in and becoming an insider. You know, we already know you're from Cornwall, but there was just this moment, you know, very subtle, but I think actually really important to the book. Right. Yeah. And, and that that whole that whole first chapter, which is the journey north along the river Tamar, which is a very ancient border. And Cornwall is technically it's just a uh, one of the counties of Britain, but it has this quasi-national status. It has had historically, um, although it's technically an English county now, it has a very strong, it's not necessarily politically separatist, but um, identity, separate identity. And a lot of people from Cornwall would say that they were not English, they would be British, but certainly not English. And the border, the Tamar, is a really ancient border. Um, it's it's probably the oldest quasi-national frontier in Europe, which probably makes it the oldest quasi-national frontier in the world. I mean, it's it's been the border for for well since the 10th century. Um, but it's it's kind of weird and ambiguous when you go there, as most borders are. I think people who don't live near the border in Cornwall have this assumption of it is this almost like a wall, an impenetrable divide. But when you go there, it's not. And that really was the beginning of the, the uncertainty and the ambiguity that runs through the whole narrative of actually, hang on, is this Cornwall or is it not Cornwall? And that pursues me all the way down through the rest of the journey, 300 miles westwards. Um, I'm, I'm still wondering, am I in Cornwall yet or not? Uh, and that, <laughs> that really is what the book becomes about. It becomes about the question of where do I start actually being an insider and where am I an outsider? Um, so it all became very tricky, very slippery. 
Yeah. And I mean, you managed to, you know, dance with that in a really, you know, lovely way. You, I mean, there is this ambiguity. You kind of embrace that, you know, where does Cornwall begin and end? I mean, you're just constantly asking that question throughout the book and there's always a little bit of a different answer. So this answer grows, you know, with your journey, you know, which feels really important to, you know, the whole theme of the book. And, you know, you have these moments where you have to kind of cross other rivers to get into other different parts of Cornwall and, it always feels like you're kind of entering some new place, even though you're in, you know, this region where you've always kind of grown up, you know, this place, you've been to these different places many times, you know, these cities, but there's still this element of, you know, I'm coming in. And, you know, that's, I think, something special to Cornwall. And you got that across really nice. Great. I, I'm, I'm delighted that you've read it that way, because that was very much what what the journey was, what it became and what I was trying to get across. And you know, Cornwall's a very small place. It's uh, it's uh, like a quasi nation, if you like. And if it was a nation, it would be not quite a micro nation, but a very, very small one. Um, it's only about 80 miles from end to end. My journey was 300 miles because I went by a wiggly route. It's a long, narrow peninsula. Um, but in a way, this is this is meant to be something translatable to bigger places bigger bigger nations about the 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 problems with uncritically identifying with a, a single block of territory and conflating nation with home you would have to be huge to fit into a fit into a, a nation even a really tiny one in a way that would make it all home right and you know we tend to talk about you know whole regions or whole countries as being home you know i think there is there's something subtle that you do in the granite kingdom but it, it struck me you know because there are a lot of moments in the book where you're kind of standing at like a high point you know you're on top of a moor you're on top of you know this piece of granite you know whatever it may be and you can kind of see other places in cornwall you know it feels like you can kind of take in the whole of Cornwall, just kind of from wherever you're standing, you know, if not the whole, then, you know, a good chunk of it. You know, the narrative, you know, it's it's a decent sized book. I mean, the narrative makes this place feel expansive, but then you kind of contract it with these moments where you can kind of take in, you know, this city and this city, but I'm standing in this place and this part of Cornwall. I just, I wonder what that experience is like for someone who lives there. And, you know, if that in itself has helped create this idea of, you know, this is Cornwall, you know, this is my place, I can see this, this is mine. And what does that do for your sense of the place and how you write about it? That's a really nice question, because it connects to something from the, you know, the travel writing scholarship that we were alluding to earlier. So there's a there's a, a sort of trope in travel writing that has often been criticized by critical scholars, post-colonial scholars of travel writing, the, the so-called monarch of all I survey scene, which is that that point, that very familiar point that you've actually just described there, where the travel writer gets to the top of the mountain or to the high pass and looks out over the land and often uses it rhetorically to kind of say, now here's your overview of the entire place. Here's your entire overview of Cornwall or Britain or India or the American continent or whatever it might be. Um, that monarch of all this amazing. And it's often been identified as a problematic scene. It's where, where the kind of coloniality comes in, where the travel writer, historically very often a privileged white man, often in traveling in the global south, stands on the mountain and takes possession, says, look, I can see everything. I'm laying this out for you on the page. And that actually is what I do a couple of times through the Granite Kingdom. 
but there are complications there because it's the place I'm actually from. Uh, I'm not the outsider there doing that. Thing about Cornwall is, as you rightly said, in a few places you can see most of it, not quite all of it. But there are a couple of high points where you can see, in terms of just sort of distance, you you, you cover probably the bulk of that peninsula. Not quite to the very end, but, but you see you see a, a greater part of it. Obviously, you don't see the intricacies. You're looking from a distance. So, so those those bits, those moments where I look down on it, they're kind of ironic and kind of deliberately ironic in the sense that you can actually see it. So here I am, the monarch of all I survey. It's my place. It's the place I'm from. But I do try to get across the point at each of those moments that you really can't see very much at all. You can't see who's in that house just at the bottom of the hill. You can't see who's driving that car that's passing on the road just below you, let alone what's going on 50 miles away on the other the other side. So yeah, they're, they're, they're kind of deliberately ironic moments, really. Um, there's always that attraction. And, and the Monarch of All Lives of A moment is a, is a powerful one for travel writers. It's a useful one to kind of get a sense of perspective, a sense of overview. It's a sort of natural thing. And I I always have that when I go to a new place, when I'm traveling, I arrive in a new city. If there's a high point, if there's a hill nearby, I always want to go up there and kind of get my bearings. And you end up using that in writing because it's a good way to present the place you're writing about. But I just think being a little bit ironic about it and playing around with it is kind of necessary once you recognize the the potentially, the potentially uh, problematic thing of standing on a hilltop and taking possession. I wonder, I mean, is it a little bit of a subtle attempt to kind of just reclaim Cornwall, you know, for the Cornish? Because so much of, you know, what we think about Cornwall has, you know, been imposed by outsiders. It's kind of been defined by, you know, people think of, you know, Arthurian mythology and um, all these different things that kind of make it like this mysterious, exotic place. Is this a moment where you're kind of trying to say, you know, this is mine, this is actually mine, I'm from here, like, this is Cornwall, I'm Cornish? So at one point, uh, which would be the kind of final one, but the view in the final one is much, much narrower. It's much, much smaller. Uh, and I'm straying into kind of spoiler territory here, but that's sort of after the after the slowly emerging revelation about about my own limits of what really counts as home have been have been reached. So there is a monarch of all I survey scene, very key one, right at the very end, but it's a smaller hill and it's a smaller view. And in a way it's a kind of disavowal of that whole that whole thing. So there's something of that going on, but again it's more complicated, I think. Um, the early, I start on a hilltop and I end on it on a hilltop, but they're different hilltops and the scale of what I can see and the scale of what I'm taking possession of changes between the two. It gets smaller, we'll say that much. Yeah, I won't spoil it for anybody, but that, you know, final scene where you are on that hilltop, really lovely. Um, I really liked it. It wrapped things up, you know, really beautifully. Um, After your whole journey across all of this, it kind of feels familiar, but also unfamiliar. You kind of finally get to a place where you, for a moment, you don't kind of recognize, you know, why it feels familiar. And then you're like, oh, I remember what happened here. Yes. Um, yeah, yeah. I loved that. I loved it. So uh, for anybody Thank you. who wants to read the book, <laughs> yeah, pay attention to that last little scene. It's really, really nice. <laughs> Yeah. And, you know, related to that, you know, this kind of, you know, reclaiming possession, you know, while we're on this topic, there's another thing I thought a lot about because, you know, a lot of this is kind of a historical inquiry into Cornwall. And, you know, you spend a lot of time trying to correct the record, you know, if you will. (laughs) Um, You know, a lot of people have certain ideas, for example, about what happened to the Cornish language, that it was, you know, kind of pushed out, you know, unable to withstand the forces working against it. 
um, you offer a very, you know, well-researched view that it was kind of likely just a natural process where English became more useful and Cornish slowly retreated mostly of its own accord. Um, you know, you do this a lot in the book, taking this dramatic story or assumption and, you know, offering a more balanced kind of realistic alternative. And if you'll allow me to say this, you kind of are unothering Cornwall in some way. <laughs> yes. Making it a victim of kind of the same forces that have altered the rest of the world in similar ways. And I, I mean, I just have to wonder if that was difficult for you. You know, I mean, you're you're Cornish. You grew up yeah. understanding this place in a very specific way. And, you know, you admit more than once in the book that you feel, you know, quite gratified when people talk about Cornwall as this like remote, exotic, mysterious place. Was this tricky rewriting the history? Uh, yes, that, you're, you're hitting all the perfect questions, Jennifer. Thanks so much for this. Yeah, uh, that's that's really what the what the, the project was about, actually, because Cornwall is this place that's been exoticized, being presented as this kind of Celtic other world by people from outside this place where, you know, the people there weren't certainly weren't really English and they sort of seem to live in another in another zone. Travel writers have been doing that for a long time. But of course, so have Cornish people as they sort of embrace the idea of an identity and try to construct a distinct and distinctly un-English identity for themselves. This stuff actually actually works quite nicely for Cornish people. And I would have grown up with that. Any reference to Cornwall as, you know, un-English, any reference to Cornwall as somewhere that was different, it was gratifying because it, it validated the things I wanted to feel and wanted to know about my own place. And it is different and it does have a distinct history, but it doesn't fit quite as neatly into boxes of absolute separateness as people maybe want, whether they're from inside Cornwall or whether they're from outside. So I am trying to unpick some of the more black and white binaries that would present the River Tamar as being this absolute frontier in one place on one side and one place on the other side, because it's more complicated than that, as it is with everywhere, as it is even with the better known and better established nations within within the United Kingdom, Wales and Scotland. I mean. Parts of Wales and Scotland are radically, completely, uncontestably not part of England. But then there are bits where the distinction is more slippery and in both directions as well, where it flows backwards and forwards over that border. So it's all about unpicking binaries and binaries are comforting. We love binaries. We like the idea of us and then here and there. But I, from all the kind of thinking, the critical thinking I've done around travel writing, travel and, and the way we react with the world, if I was going to write about Cornwall, I was going to have to have to um, not sit with comfortable binaries. I'm really glad I wrote this book now. I nearly wrote a book about Cornwall maybe 10 or 12 years ago. And I'm so glad I didn't because it would have pursued a fairly simple narrative of Cornwall is completely different. Um, Cornwall is not England. And I would have gone for the comforting binary that would not have challenged myself, that would not have challenged my own sense of where I'm from. But I think in the end, I've come to something that is more interesting, that Cornwall is different, but in some places it's not different. And it's that that ambiguity, that slipperiness, that move away from a binary of us, them, here and there, that makes makes the world interesting. Yeah, you know, you get to that toward the end of the book where you kind of put Cornwall in a gray area, which is, you know, where every place is, you know, no place is in, you know, the area of black and white. And 
think that you recognize that a lot of people from Cornwall like to think of themselves as other than English. <laughs> um, and you're kind of trying, and it almost feels at that moment like you're trying to speak to the people of Cornwall. Like, hey, guys, like, I understand where you're coming from. I get it. Uh, but let's rethink this a little bit. And I'll take the opportunity now to just ask, while you were writing this, who did you tend to imagine your reader as? Um, yeah, that's that's a really important question. It's a question my editor asked at one point as well. And the kind of crude marketing answer is anyone who's interested in Cornwall, which is which is true. And I'm dancing around voices from inside and voices from outside of Cornwall. So it's it is for it is for it's for anyone who's kind of curious about this place. Uh, but the the slightly the slightly strident message <laughs> that that comes towards the end. Yeah, that is first and foremost for people from Cornwall. It's just a little warning. It's just saying, look, be careful. Think think carefully about what you're doing. Think carefully about the equivalences of what, what you're saying, particularly when you talk about who is and isn't Cornish. So it's just a little, yeah, it's just a little suggestion to people from Cornwall to think, to think, um, yeah, to think carefully. Now that's something that can only be said by somebody from within Cornwall. And that gets to the value of a travel writer writing about the place they're from or writing at very least to somebody with a, with a, a strong heritage connection to the place. Uh, I might have critical thoughts about a particular country. Um, I might have critical thoughts about the, the, the national identity of country X. I'm not from there. And it would be awkward for me to go to country X and write a write a, a slightly critical account of, of the, the constructed identity of that place. Um, people certainly have done in the past, but it's not something I would feel entirely comfortable. Perhaps if my parents had come from that place, as so I had that deep tie, but I had an outsider's view on it, maybe having grown up somewhere else, maybe growing up in the US or in the UK, that would probably give me quite a good position to do that from. But if I was just a total outsider, it's, it's awkward. So I felt like I was in a privileged position in terms of writing about Cornwall as a travel writer. Yeah, you know, you do talk a bit in the travel writing tribe about ideally travel writers would kind of be both an outsider and an insider. Um, so they can kind of do both. They can kind of walk that line uh, without offending too many people. <laughs> They always do offend people, um, and the, the, the insider outsiders often get the the worst criticisms from within the country. They sort of say, "Oh well, she's not she's not really from here." You know, she went to school in London, or she went to the states when she was five, or whatever it is. But I think they have an authority to do that, more authority to do that than me, for example, going to somewhere that's that's completely foreign to me. Right. Yeah, and I think that's a good point. And you know, you mentioned binaries, and that's making me think about another theme. I don't know if the theme is the right word here, but something else I see you do quite a bit in the book. I mean, it's actually something you talked a lot about in the travel writing tribe, you know, this idea of belatedness. Um, and I'll get to that in a second, but I just want to read this sentence that when I read it, I had to kind of read it three times. <laughs> um, it comes, if you have the physical book, it's on page 166, very first sentence of chapter seven. And it reads, St. Austell, a Cornish town away from the sea, early afternoon, midsummer in the third decade of the 21st century. If people need to listen to that three times, the third decade of the 21st century. I just, I had to like stop. And I was like, oh, that's a very strange way to write that. But then, you know, I thought about it and it brought me back to the travel writing tribe where you talk a lot about how 
we tend to kind of create this really interesting, you know, binary, if you'll allow, between you know, the past and the present. The past is something we've kind of lost. And, oh, it's really sad that, you know, I can't go back 100 years and see how things were. And we have this really strong sense of nostalgia a lot in travel writing. And I think that you're practicing here something that you learned when writing the Travel Writing Tribe, where you can kind of make the past and the present equal, right? You can talk about it in a way that one doesn't feel more important or better than the other. And, you know, this one little sentence, you know, you do it a couple of times. There's like other couple scenes. There's the Ordinalia play was another moment where you start the chapter with this scene and you kind of end the chapter with the scene. And one is from, you know, hundreds of years ago and one is from now and they look so similar. Like you're essentially having the same experience that people hundreds of years ago would have had. And uh, this oh, is just so fascinating, this part. <laughs> Travel writers, you know, they, they tend to lament the things that they have lost. You know, they, they tend to think like, well, the present, like what is there to find now? And you're, you're subverting that, right? You're, you're saying, no, there's a lot to see here. You know, culture is essentially the things that have more or less stayed the same over time. And, you know, doing that in a, a way that stops people in their tracks, you know, the third, third decade of the 21st century, like, oh yeah, I'm still in the middle of history. Like this is that's where we are. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> this is not the end. And, you know, in your, in the travel writing tribe, you do talk a bit about maybe the way that travel writing is going, you know, maybe this sense of nostalgia or belatedness, you know, maybe that's kind of falling out of favor. And I wonder, is there still a place that sometimes or there there is because i'm interested in history the books i write are tend to be history focused and and when when you critique that idea of belatedness in, in travel writing which which put very simply is the idea that um yeah, the modern world is a bit spoiled everyone's been ruined by modernity or tourism everyone's been everyone's been homogenized so when you go to country x the stuff you want to look at is not the shopping malls and the McDonald's. You kind of want to find the traditional artisans and the, and the people still pursuing unchanged traditions. Well, it's the bad news. No traditions are unchanged. They, they all shift and they're all, they're all fluid. They have lines of continuity very often going back into the deep past, but nothing is quite as it used to be. So you, but you do find that in, in some travel writing, it, both uh, kind of journalism, travel journalism, article type writing and books. There's often this focus on what's what we perceive as traditional, what we perceive as unspoiled. So we don't go to the new town, we go to the old town with its winding alleyways and its, and its clamoring markets. While right next door is the bit of town where most people actually live, which just has McDonald's and shopping malls and, and whatever. We tend to focus on the old stuff. And that's, that's that idea of belatedness, the good stuff, the good stuff happened in the past. Modernity is boring, so let's try and try and find the past here. But yeah, we're we're living in what will be the past and what will be perceived as unspoiled or less spoiled uh, down the line. Um, the town we're living in now will, will look different in a hundred years' time. People will say, "Wow, 2023, 2024, Wow, it was amazing back then. It was completely unspoiled. There weren't too many tourists, um, or whatever it might be. You know, the past is always moving with us, and and the strange irony of travel writing having that sense of belatedness and focusing on the past is it misses all the interesting stuff that travel writing is uniquely equipped to record which is just the passing moment the transient moment that one person sitting next to you on the bus at that one particular time in 
2023 or whenever it might be. And those bits do kind of get carried in and some travel writing really kind of attempts to take a snapshot of the place in a in a particular time. But I think it, I think it can and I think it should do both. But we should always remind ourselves that the past is happening right now as well. Um, you know, yeah. we started this conversation in the past. Yeah, I mean, it's certainly something we see a lot of in the travel stories we receive. Or, you know, people go to a place and thought I was going to see, you know, dirt roads and, you know, cows walking down the side of the road. But, oh, like, these are like modern buildings now. Like, oh, this isn't what I wanted. But just to, just to hop in there and give you a, sort of a, a real small example in case people are, are not familiar with that idea and trying to work out what it means. That scenario you've just described. We go there and we go, oh, wow, it's way more kind of developed than, or people use that awful term westernized, which is a problematic term in itself. Um, but they'll say oh, it's way more westernized than I expected it to be and a little bit disappointed. But when you look at the pictures they take, the stuff they put on Instagram, it tends to be of the dirt road and the cow because there is a dirt road and a cow there somewhere. It might not be particularly representative of it, but they're the bits that they take the snapshots of. And that's that's an attempt to overcome belatedness in action. You don't put up on Instagram the shopping mall and the McDonald's. You put up on Instagram the dirt road and the cow, which both exist. But which one is more representative? Well, there's there's the question. So that's belatedness in action, an attempt to overcome it. And that's what travel writing very often does. And, you know, now that I have read both of your books, <laughs> when I come across this, like a strong sense of belatedness, you know, a little bit overwhelming in a story, it's less palatable than it used to be. Um, <laughs> and, you know, there is a lot of interest in what's happening now. And I've read, you you reference uh, Kafka Kasavova in your book, The Travel Writing Tribe. She's someone who does this really well, where she doesn't really favor the past or the present she kind of plays with both really nicely and you do something very similar in the granite kingdom you know after reading both of those examples i can see how this can really work for travel writers and i hope that more people experiment with that i don't know in your opinion do you think it would be a good thing for travel writers to try to bring more of the present and see more interest in the present moment yeah, um, I mean, I, I think Kapka Kasbova is is a brilliant travel writer. And for me, she's a kind of exemplar of good 21st century, uh, third decade of the 21st century travel <laughs> writing. Uh, she has certain advantages in that she has an insider outsider perspective when she's writing about Southeastern Europe. She's from Bulgaria originally, but she's lived just about everywhere, but she tends to write about that region. So she has that, that insider outsider perspective. She has that kind of global soul history of migration in her own background. Some of it sort of semi-voluntary, some of it voluntary in later life. Um, she's writing in her fourth language as well. And like you say, she's interested equally in the past and the present. She doesn't sort of privilege one over the other. Um, now we can't all be like Kapka Kaspova. We can't all have that background, but most of us in some small way have elements of that. We can write about a place that we're from, but we're not quite from, or we can just go to the place we are from and really make an effort to look at it with a slightly distanced eye, maybe by engaging with the way other people have written about it. The, the notions of where's home, where's away can always be blurred. Even if you think, well, I'm from this city. My parents were from this city. I was born in this city. I went away for college, but I've never really lived anywhere else. But you can still find the insider, outsider element there because there will be communities in that city that you've never engaged with who have the same geographical reference points to you, but a completely different worldview. There's a place where you can be an insider, outsider. You can just engage with a different community in your own city. Um, so I think that, that yeah, playing with that binary, looking to find the insider, outsider perspective, wherever you are and whoever you are is a good thing. Kapka Gaspova is a brilliant 
probably of people I've encountered she's probably the, the best practitioner partly because of natural advantages of her own background but uh she's a good one to look to and think how can I be like Kathy Casabova even if like I say I'm very rooted in this particular city yeah, just a simple practice of trying I think is something you know for travel writers now. sure so kind of moving in a little bit of a different direction um as an academic you've studied ethical issues in travel literature you know some of which you talk about at length in the travel writing tribe. And, you know, of course, travel writers tend to walk into more of those ethical issues when they, you know, as an outsider, go to a place where the people have been, you know, historically colonized or oppressed in some way. That's not the case in the Granite Kingdom, right? Because you're not an outsider coming in and saying, this is what I think of this place and this is how things should be. You're not doing any of that. You're engaging with a place that you've always known in a certain way and trying to change kind of your mind about things and change other people's mind about things, you know, in a lot of different interesting ways, ways we've already talked about. And with that being the case, though, I'm sure you did have some ethical issues to think about. And I'm just really curious about what some of those were and how you may have tried to overcome them. So there, I mean, there's a whole whole raft and a whole sort of roster of ethical issues with with any travel writing, and there are the there are the really sort of simple, the simple, straightforward, practical ones that that journalists have as well, which is you're potentially representing real people that you have that you've met along the way, um, and what do you what do you do about that? So there tends to be kind of two categories of people that you meet there's the ones you have the extended encounters with um and you stay with them or whatever you have a pre-arranged encounter with them and then there's the chance met people um that you just meet for five minutes on the bus or you stop to talk to as you're walking past and in in journalism broadcast media there tends to be uh, a formal effort to get consent for things you know you you check that people have consent for this when you're just wandering around on your own as a travel writer a lot of the people you meet don't know that you're a travel writer and it can be a bit I don't know it can be a bit cringe to go around announcing yourself saying oh by the way I'm going to write a book about this you might end up in it because that doesn't lead to those natural encounters so the most straightforward one was gosh I'm, I'm representing people um and is that okay and because I'm writing about the place I'm from, there's more chance of me running into those people, um, including the chance encounter ones of people saying, oh, that was actually my brother that you met in that pub or whatever at some point. He really doesn't like how you wrote about him. Um, so the, the longer encounters, there's there's I stay with somebody. I um, do part of the walk with a friend of mine. Those ones, I sent them their portrayals because it was easy for me to they knew I was writing a book I sent them their portrayals said look is this all right and they they said yeah it's absolutely fine somebody somebody picked up a couple of small errors just in things I'd described um that weren't quite right so with those ones I did that but then there are the, the sort of chance encounters somebody sitting on a bus people sitting in a pub uh what I did with them was I did at one point where there are names involved I changed names although people from that particular place it'd be very easy for them to identify who they were but um but by changing the names if they don't like it they can say no it wasn't me mate <laughs> so I did that and then I just thought about the others and thought gosh are these is there anything potentially problematic in these portrayals am I portraying any of these people badly any of these people who could potentially be identified um, and I looked at them carefully and I don't think any of them are the one bit where there's a little bit of a sort of comic moment, which is some guys drinking in a pub. That's where I changed the names. 
I toyed with that one for quite a while and I did think about it and I thought, oh, should I move it somewhere else? Because it's a small community. And although the names have changed, people people from there would know who they were, I'm sure. Um, but it was, I think it's an affectionate section in the end, but I spent quite a bit of time wrangling over whether to include that, whether to move it to a different place, but it didn't work in a different place. And then I'd be slipping over the boundaries into fiction, which is a whole other ethical issue. Yeah, these these portraits. I know exactly the scene you're talking about. Uh, it was a funny one. Uh, I really enjoyed that scene, actually. <laughs> um, as somebody who's not from Cornwall, you know, maybe a Cornish version would think very differently about that scene. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, and you know, I also have to ask. You know, there are a couple times where you talk specifically about people who, you know, historical figures, people who have passed. You know, they died many years ago. But you do talk about a couple of them at length. You know, there's the woman who was, you know, supposedly the last Cornish speaker in Cornwall. Yeah. <laughs> um, she kind of claimed that title for herself. And you kind of dive into this and try to correct that, you know, she probably wasn't, you know, this guy probably was. Do you have the same ethical concerns there? That's a that's a really nice question, actually. Um, it's this is Dolly Pentreath, who was famously recorded as the last Cornish speaker. It's it's universally accepted by um by historians and by language experts that she she definitely wasn't the last Cornish speaker. We probably don't know who the last Cornish speaker is as a as a candidate who died twelve years after her, but we don't know. Could have could have been anyone. Someone in that that period, about a little over two hundred years ago. She there, there's been some really nice sort of academic work on her, including by a scholar called Ken Broadhurst, who's also my Cornish language teacher, who's kind of looked at the way her her own voice has been lost. Um, you know, there's a lot of discussion. There was a lot of discussion in her own lifetime after she was discovered by a traveller from from England, um, and then subsequently. And the, the, I, I was kind of aware of the fact that that this real person, this poor elderly, almost certainly illiterate woman from a very peripheral place in the British national sense has had so much talk done around her and to her. And she's famous supposedly for talking, but we don't ever really hear her talking. So uh, by by raising the possibility that she knew what she was doing and that she was kind of self-mythologizing, which I think is a reasonable, when we look at the few the few fragments of what we believe she said, it's quite good evidence that she was doing that. In a way, by rescuing that possibility, I actually felt like it was almost giving her a little bit of agency in as much as you can, somebody who's dead and and who doesn't have anything recorded, allowing people to think, oh gosh, maybe she was, maybe she she made all of this up for 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 fun or for money or for whatever it was. Um, even if it's not true, just that possibility stops her being kind of frozen in aspect as this as this ancient old lady who had this ancient celtic language and was the last guardian of ancient knowledge uh she's she's an interesting character and, and, a, and a tricky one but we can't we can't reach the real one she's she's so deeply encoded and embedded in layers of text and mythology that that reaching the actual woman behind that is is, is completely impossible I think that's a really good way to think about, you know, the way that we interact with people who are alive and people who have passed, you know, there, there are different kind of ethical concerns. So just kind of as a final question, there are a few moments in the book where you use the second person, you. Yeah. And, you know, I just found this interesting because in a lot of the stories that we see come through when people try to use you, we tend to tell writers to avoid that um, just because it is kind of tricky to do well, right? Especially in short form, which is what Intrepid Time specializes in. In a book, yeah. it's definitely a little bit different. But I just 
want to ask you if you have some insight into how you decide when to employ the second person and when you think it can actually work well. Yeah, it's it's at a kind of craft level, a technical level. It's something that I first really engaged with in um, in the travel writing tribe, which is personal narrative. Most of it is in the first person, but there are just a couple of places where I break into the second person and then at the very end into the third person and then back into the first person. When I where I used the second person in the travel writing tribe was for a scene where I. I deliberately cross into fiction so it was I was using it there as a as a signal that uh that this is something that didn't really happen it was a kind of a technical craft strategy having done the bulk of a chapter in the first person past tense I moved into the present tense and the second person as a way to kind of signal and signpost what was going on then where I used the third person at the end of that that was a deliberate grammatical attempt to kind of break try to break away from that almost self-absorption of the first person narrative and to just suggest that the, the obvious fact that there are lots of other people looking at the same things. So I, I kind of just stepped out of myself, put myself into the third person and tried to draw attention to how other people might have seen me and then came back into the first person. So I think it can be useful for things like that um, and that's where I first began playing around with it. So I had that idea and I wanted to pick up with that in the, the Granite Kingdom and do it again. So I use it specifically at the beginning and the end. And it's almost a way of moving in to the personal narrative and then moving moving back out of it. Even though the, the epilogue in a way is very personal, it takes me right almost to the brink of, of home home, the actual my family home where it is. But I don't take the reader all the way there. I, I sort of stop just before just before I actually get there and there were two two things going on there so at the beginning I opened in the the second person you so it's me it's the things I saw it's a record of what I saw but I'm doing it there to to kind of create a sense of unity with the reader that that you the reader are coming into Cornwall so the opening line is you are in a place that doesn't exist and well that that, that's a sort of complicated idea in itself and I use it for that that whole section so that's to kind of bring you the reader to share this moment with the reader and then I move off into the into the more conventional first person and then at the end having taken it to the sort of the symbolic end of the journey all the realization all the all the sort of lessons learned then I pull back out into that second person which is partly to do the same thing to again share the perspective with the reader but it's also me just quietly stepping off the page it's it's me on the way out just kind of waving by goodbye over a couple of pages by getting rid of the I and moving into the you I think playing around with that in travel writing is really fun and really fruitful um, because it can be really useful to to make you think about perspectives. If you just write for a little while in the third person, that helps you to to think, gosh, what did I look like? A hulking six foot white guy wandering down that street in wherever it was. What did did the people I walked past see when they saw me? Engaging with it imaginatively can be quite useful. would probably be tiresome to read an entire book <laughs> written like that but in small sections here and there I think playing around with it is, is good fun I mean you could you could write a really straight first person past tense account of a trip you took a short form piece playing around with it flip it into the second person or flip it into the third person and just see what 
what new impressions that draws in and what what judgments you've made that maybe are slightly problematic might be highlighted by that. And if you suddenly take them out of the eye, you might see things and think, gosh, I, how do I know what that person felt? Maybe I should change that. Um, or wasn't I being a bit, a bit, uh, a bit biased there in that moment? Maybe I should change that. So just as an exercise, it's a good thing to do. Um, it's it's tricky and used sparingly in small small quantities, I think. Yeah, no, that's a great point. And you do that a couple of times in the book. You know that you know the big moments are the beginning and the end, of course. Yeah. Oh, but yeah. There, there are some. Yeah, there are other little little moments. It's it's always when I want to just distance myself from myself a little bit. I think that's that's what it is. It's trying to just just yeah just step away from this concrete figure moving through the landscape, which is me. And I think you know it plays well with the fact that there's a lot of history in this book, where you know that can maybe take the reader a little bit away. You know, you're talking about the past and about these academics, and you know a lot of things are happening with the history. And then you know the you kind of just helps pull them back in. You know, we talked a lot about the past and a lot about the history. Yeah. Like, right, let's come back in, and here we are. Um, I think it does a really nice job of just. It's it's that. a wonderfully flexible form. The second person, it's it, it's. Yeah, it gets too much. I mean, reading a whole novel in it is, I, I have been novels in it, but it's hard, hard going. <laughs> reading an entire long, long form travel piece in it would be hard going, but it's, it, it has, it has multiple uses. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, that's a really good point for, for people who are just getting started with travel writing, people who have been travel writing a long time and just don't really know how to play with that. Um, it's just a, like a fun exercise, I think, as you say. Um, so people who are listening, give it a go. Yeah, Tim, I think that's a great place to wrap up. This has been fascinating, uh, this whole conversation. I loved both of the books, um, talking about both of them, you know, as they play with each other and, you know, the Granite Kingdom in itself. So much good writing there. <laughs> so thank you so much for these books. Um, congratulations on both of them. And if people want to pick up the Granite Kingdom, where can they do so? Um, yeah, thanks so much. Granite Kingdom is published by Head of Zeus. It is out now in the UK and Europe, and it will be out globally within within a couple of weeks. I think early August is the official international launch date. So where, wherever you get your books from, all of the big online booksellers will have it. It's available digitally as well. But try and get it from a bricks and mortar store or at least from their website if you can. We will link to to the book on the page for the podcast. So if anybody's interested in picking it up, uh, we'll have it there for you. Thank you so much, Tim. Thank you so much for making time for this conversation today. Thanks so much for having me. Um, they were they were great questions and things I could talk about forever. Thanks so much, Tim. Thanks for listening, everyone. And don't forget to check out our new travel stories published weekly on intrepidtimes.com. See you next time. Thank you.